In Philippians chapter 3, A.T. Robertson described this chapter as Paul's holy quest. Paul Earnhardt described it as his all-consuming passion. We have seen in the first two chapters the relationship that we are to have with one another. And now in chapter 3, Paul is going to take that and apply it with himself and his relationship to the Lord. It is all-consuming passion that grows out of a commitment that brought great joy. And not only this book, but Paul will say in other places, for the kingdom of God is not food and drink, but is righteousness, joy, and peace. And so when he makes that point in this chapter, that's not the only place and only time that he has ever said something like these words. They are part of his all-consuming passion for everything that he does. It seems to me like in the first two verses that he takes a detour. That he does not write this letter with the intent of taking the tangent that he does but there's something that he sees that is pressing. Something that he sees that brings a great deal of urgency to his mind. That he wants to share with these Philippians. I think he sees the danger coming to Philippi and the church there. Not that it is present. But he has seen it in Corinth. He has seen these Judaizers come. And take advantage of people. And so Paul, as it was, is going to take a turn and address those particular people. And he does so not in the nicest of terms. I don't know if Paul were to speak these words today, how politically correct they would be in our me-consumed society. But Paul is not concerned about that. He's concerned about the danger that is coming that he sees as a possibility. So in verse 1, he will say, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Here's the expression of his consuming passion. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. And the first thing he says about that is, it's not tedious for me to write these things to you. Some passages say grievous, some passages say slothful. And what Paul, I think, is saying there is, please do not think that I am being lazy, or I am being put out, or I'm trying to be an extra burden to you by saying these things to you. And you can just hear someone say, well, here comes old Johnny One Note. Because he kept saying this thing, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. When is he going to move past that? And by the way, when he started, he said, finally. So why doesn't he mean finally? Why doesn't he just say, okay, we have the invitation, stand and sing. Finally, that's it. 
Well, let me ask you this. As a parent, have you ever said finally? And then you had five more minutes? And the child's thinking, you said finally five minutes ago. Well, why'd you say finally? Well, it was a transition of something from where you're going to where you're going to go. And you're saying, I've got a few more things to say. I'm not quite done yet. And so it's a transitional thing. He's not saying, I'm bringing this to a completion. He's saying, finally, let me lead you to this thought. And so as he writes this, he says, it's not tedious for me to write these things to you, but for you, it is safe. Speakers repeat the same thing again and again. Sometimes, if we're honest, we repeat the same thing because we get stuck on high center. The wheels are spinning and they don't stop spinning. They just don't connect to the next thought. And so we just keep spinning like a wheel in the mud trying to make sure we get some traction here somewhere and then we can take off again. But that's not what he's doing here. Sometimes speakers say the same thing over and again for emphasis sake. And that's what he's doing here. He's saying, let me emphasize this one more time for you. Now it ought to be that as we study and as we grow and as we speak, we ought to grow. It ought not to be the same sermon with a different title, 365 days a year. But there's also nothing wrong with taking that and repeating it again, for emphasis sake, to try to drive the point home. And so though things may be repeated, it's not because the speaker has spent all week on the golf course or all week in his favorite hobby and has got to do nothing else, so he's got nothing better to say than what he said the week before. Sometimes it is important to review, to rehearse, and relive the things that have been spoken before because we're all at a different place at different times. We think about the foundational truths of God's Word. And sometimes when we revisit those, what we call very first principle things, there is the wag that says, we've heard that enough. Which says to me, we haven't. Because there's something else that needs to be implanted here. But if we have heard it enough, then just hear it more firmly. J.W. McGarvey, of years gone, prior to my father's generation, said he quit speaking on the instrument of music, the doctrine of the teaching of the instrument of music, because people quit listening. Well, if that's the case, then let's just fold up the carpet and close the doors and go, because which one of us is it? including speakers, that haven't at some point said, I've heard that over and over again. Well, then just listen one more time and let it be firmly planted one more time. Because there's somebody else that in that moment, the light bulb has come on. In that moment, whereas moments before, there has been a connection made between what has been said and what has been received that was not there before. And second of all, there are new generations coming. 
And so just because we who are a little bit older think we've heard these foundational things over and over again does not mean these who are younger have heard them and that they have finally understood them. Generations come and generations go and every generation has to wrestle with those fundamental foundational truths. And every generation that comes must be exposed to those foundational generational truths. And so, while we repeat ourselves, and while we relive past sermons, and while fundamental truths come with a new dress on them, presented from a different vantage point, same fundamental truth presented from a different vantage point at a different time, because everybody's at a different place in their lives, does not mean we have those things firmly grounded. And we must not think, as speakers, because we have spoken of it once within 31 years, we have then solved the problem. Because 31 years ago, Drake was one years old. And he still got some stuff he needs to learn. And so, when Paul says, finally, it's not a tedious thing for me to write these things to you, but notice the word, but for you. But for you, it's safe. And so, when we have speakers that then come and preach these things that are foundational to us, we can say with Paul, it is safe for us. It's safe for us. But now then, having said that, that was nice. He then says, beware. It's like the toll bell is sounding. Here is something. Sit up, folks. Pay attention. This is serious stuff. I'm fixing to tell you something really, really important to get. Listen to me, please, is what he's saying. He says, beware of evil. Beware of dogs. Now, I told you, (laughs) Paul speaks rather pointedly here. Beware of dogs. You remember what the Lord said about those dogs? He said, don't cast that which is holy before dogs. In Matthew chapter 7. Or cast your pearls before swine. These are onerous curs. These are not like the Syrophoenician woman that is when Jesus is at the table. And she says, can I have some bread? And he said, well, it's not time for me to feed you. And she says, yeah, but even the little puppy dogs, the pet dogs get the crumbs. These aren't the pet dogs. These aren't the ones that are going to crawl in your lap while you put your recliner in third gear and you sit there and rub them while you're watching your favorite TV show. These are onerous curs who have come for one thing, to rob people of their glory. And when Paul will say something about them and their influence in Corinth, he said it this way, they have come not to seek you, but yours. And in 2 Corinthians, he will speak with a great deal of incredulity with regard to what is taking place in Corinth. He said, I came and I asked nothing from you. I robbed others taking wages from them that I might spare you. And I come, and the only thing I came, I came not to seek what was yours. I came simply to seek you. I came simply to, to appeal to your heart with the word of God. But these Judaizing teachers come in and they don't have one ounce of care or concern for you. The only thing they want to do is they want to maliciously take from you what is yours and they're not interested in your heart at all. And I'm so surprised that you have so quickly turned from them. In Galatians chapter 3, he said, I am utterly amazed you are so bewitched. And what he's saying in that is, I don't understand. 
I don't understand how you so easily be by these who've come in and are spying out your liberty to rob you of your liberty that's there. And I would suggest to you that if that is an amazement then, we should not be as amazed, we should be less amazed today because that same kind of thing still happens with people, even God's people. <clears throat> it's so easy to come in with, with a message that takes advantage of people as opposed to trying to implant the Word of God in their hearts and have a concern for what you can get from the people as opposed to a concern for the people. And those two motives are miles apart. Then he will call them evil workers. In Matthew chapter 23, he will say of these kind of people that what they will do is they will travel land and sea. They will go from sea to signing sea that they might make one more proselyte. And when they do, they make him twofold more the child of hell. Wow. Here are these evil workers. And then he says, they are of the mutilation. Old King James says concision. And to play on the word circumcision. The word circumcision was to cut the flesh. And what he's saying is, they don't cut the flesh, they mutilate. And the point is, not with regard to reference to foreskin, but a reference to their hearts. And what he's saying is, they are mutilating the joy out of your heart. The Jews had missed that. The Judaizers had missed that. Look at Colossians chapter 2 real quickly. Colossians chapter 2. Look at what he will say in verse, uh, in verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Look back at Romans chapter 2 real quickly. Again, you see the language of Paul continues in other places the same way. In Romans chapter 2, I look at verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcised of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Well, maybe, maybe the law just wasn't clear about this. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Now look at what is said in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. Did Moses clarify this? Or was Moses kind of ambiguous about what this circumcision thing is all about? You see, to them, that was their badge of honor. But he says in verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today. And look at verse 16. Therefore circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. They took this circumcision as their badge of honor, their badge of identification. And what Paul is saying here is you have missed that. It wasn't the circumcision of the flesh that was the important point. It was the circumcision of the heart. And what you have done, what these Judaizers are doing, is now they are coming in and they are mutilating the hearts of people. And Paul says he needs to warn them about that. Turning back to Philippians chapter 3 then. 
He says, for beware of mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. And so Paul said, we are the circumcision. The Old Testament, the Old Law spoke about the heart. And the Old Law spoke about the heart being involved in worship. Just like the New Covenant does. And Jesus makes that clear in John chapter 4. It's not in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. But the time is coming when God is going to seek those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. Who worship Him from a truly spiritual heart. And that's what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, or Deuteronomy 10. So Paul will turn it and say, no, we are of the circumcision. And when he says we are of the circumcision, what he's simply saying here is, what God wanted from us all in the beginning was, He wanted just our hearts. He just wanted our hearts. It was not a matter of the circumcision of the foreskin. It was a matter of the circumcision of the heart. That's what God wanted. And it's so easy to get so distracted by the outward things like that that we lose the import of where God's circumcision really was that he says we are part of, and that is the circumcision of the heart. Listen. The Lord's church, the Lord's people are not in competition with other religions. In fact, other religions aren't even in the same stadium as the Lord's people. But it's so easy to begin to think that we are losing out on something because we are not competitive with everybody else while we see them seemingly grow exponentially. But we get distracted in that because the real question is not does our building compare, not do our numbers compare, not do our educated preachers compare, it's that does the message we're preaching compare with what the apostles have said to us so we can implant it on the hearts of people? And what Moses said in Deuteronomy 10 and what the Lord will say in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 37, the greatest commandment of all is to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. So what does that make the greatest sin of all? To fail to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. To desire or pursue anything else is an affront to Christ. It is not great preachers, it is great Christians, it's not great churches. It's faithful people. I think we're guilty of this. Maybe I just say I think I'm guilty of it. We have a gospel meeting. And we advertise that gospel meeting, brother so-and-so is coming. Sometimes underscore to that is brother great is coming. And the question regarding that is, so what? In fact, just think a minute. Just think a minute. 
when Brother Greg comes. Sunday morning at 9 o'clock is filled. Sunday morning at 10 o'clock is filled. And Sunday morning at 10.50 is filled. And Monday night at 7 is filled. Tuesday night at 7 is filled. And Wednesday night at 7 is filled. But when Brother Ordinary comes, it's a ghost town. And when Brother Great comes, he can sway emotionally. He can even make his palm tingle. And people will be utterly consumed by it. But let Brother Ordinary come with a strong, reverent, respectful message. And we yawn. You see how we can make the same mistake? In Mark chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, you have the story of the house being filled with a throng of people. And the statement is made, the house is filled because Jesus is in the house. When I was a lot younger and thought I could be a lot cuter and get by with it, when we lived in Del Rio and we'd have a gospel meeting, I'd have these little three-by-five cards printed up for gospel meetings. And the advertisement would say, Jesus is in the house, come here. And the man's name preaching wasn't even mentioned. And people said, who's coming? Well, Jesus is in the house. Well, listen, when Jesus is in the house, the house was filled. The house was full when Jesus was in the house. He is our fullness. We are filled with, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and he has filled filled us with his fullness. That's the prayer of Paul in Ephesians 3, that we might be filled with his fullness. He is our fullness. What else do we need? I wonder if if Nicodemus thought this when he came by night. You know, Nicodemus was in Sanhedrin. That meant he was somewhat, right? He was somebody. He came from the Sanhedrin. He's coming by night to see Jesus. And he comes to Jesus. And did Nicodemus think when I come in the night and finally he sees my shadow approaching and the light of the room shines upon me, he's going to say, oh, Nicodemus, I've been waiting for you so long. I can't believe it took you so long to get here. I have been waiting so anxiously for you. I have been dealing with these clods, and I am so sick and tired of them. They are clods to the extreme, and now, finally, finally, I have somebody that's somewhat. We can get this started. Big time. Oh, Nicodemus, I'm so glad you're here. Well, if that's what Nicodemus thought, (laughs) he got a needle stuck in his balloon because the next thing was, he said, Nicodemus, listen, you don't even know what you're asking. You're going to have to be born again. That is, you're going to have to be turned upside down from being right side up. We must not think That because someone lives a good moral life, 
that we then tell them, all you need to do, you just need to be baptized. I mean, you're right there. You just need to be baptized. No. They need to be turned upside down from being right side up. And what they need is the same thing you and I need, and they need to repent. And the reason they haven't come to the Lord yet is because they haven't yet embraced repentance yet. Just simply being a good moral person did not in any way justify Cornelius and there's not a better moral person that's ever mentioned in the New Testament than Cornelius. And Peter didn't go to him and say, oh, Cornelius, you're right there, buddy. Come on. All you need to do is just get in the baptistry with me and you'll be good. No. We do people a disservice when that's what we sell them because what they must have is a circumcised heart. They must need to repent. And so when Paul speaks to them then, he then says to them, we are of the circumcision. There's no confidence in the flesh. So he will say then in verse 4, Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. What things were gained to me, these I have counted for lost but Christ. You want to talk about the flesh. This was a consternation to these Jews. These Judaizers, this was a consternation to them. They, they did not get what Paul was saying here. But when Paul says, I've got no confidence in the flesh, he then begins to lay out his heritage. He said, you want to talk about the flesh, folks? Listen. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. There was nobody more Hebrew than I was a Hebrew. You want to talk about family lineage? I had the family lineage. Paul said, I'm not playing this game with people. I'm not playing the game with people like the Jews and the Greeks are playing games with people. I'm not playing politics in this. Here, listen, I'm serious about this, folks. I'm really serious about this, he's saying. He said, in fact, I was so serious about it. Look at what he says. Concerning zeal, I was persecuting the church. I was putting people in prison and putting people to death. I was so serious about it. Now, the thing we have a challenge with understanding who Saul of Tarsus is to become Paul is how do you how do you jihad, how do you match, how do you balance this man with such fervent zeal and his devotion to imprisoning people because they're of the way and putting them to death to being of a good conscience? How do you balance that? Because in Acts chapter 23 and verse 1, he will say, what I did in all good conscience. He just said, because I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And I thought it verily my responsibility to defend the law and make sure not only did I defend the law, but that everybody, everybody participated and applied the law the way the law was to be applied. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 16, he says, I know no man after the flesh. And speaking of Christ and what he simply means by that is, it's not that he never saw Christ. Christ was not there around when Paul was. But what he's saying is this. He's saying, I, judge, I used to judge men from a carnal point of view. I don't judge men from a carnal point of view. And when I judge men from a carnal point of view, this is how I judge them. The law says, if you hang on the tree, you're cursed. 
and this man hung on a tree. So he's cursed. And so therefore, it is my responsibility as a Hebrew of Hebrews, taking the law seriously, to make sure people not only understand it, but that they apply it. And if they don't apply it, then they are guilty of following a man that is accursed. And they are accursed. And they are enemies of the law. And when he said, I did all good conscience, that's what he means. He's not saying, I intended to be a murderous wretch. Paul is not a rebellious individual. That's not even his point in Romans chapter 7. Paul was a man, he says, who sought to be blameless according to the law. But the more he sought it, the more frustrated he became. Because the more he failed. And the more he sought it, the more in deeper, the deeper in despair he fell because he kept failing all the more. And then that day came when his world was turned not 180 degrees different, but 360 degrees diff different. He was turned upside down from being right side up. He was turned inside out when he was blinded on that road. And finally he had to drink it down when he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? He had every reason not to do that. But he drank it down. He said, this cup of grace is being offered to me. I'm going to drink it. I'm going to drink it to the full. And he drank that cup of grace to the full. And what he would say is, what else do we want? Let me ask you something. Have you ever in full confidence... Have any of us ever in full confidence thought the way we were walking was the way God wanted us to walk? Only to be blinded by the bright light of the gospel? To have then revealed to us this way I have devoted my life to all my life has been leading me in the wrong direction. The question is, if that has ever happened to us, will we have the same response Saul of Tarsus had? If I have been thoroughly convinced in my life that man is a totally depraved individual and it must have the shining light of his direct operation of the Spirit to enlighten me and I can't come to him if that's not the case and now I learn I'm a free moral agent and the light of the gospel has shined in my heart and that light now shining in my heart has revealed to me that I once was innocent but now I'm guilty and lost and I can be saved. Will I have the conviction and the love of the truth, and the precious value of my soul to make the turn that Saul of Tarsus made. And I will tell you, that is easy to say. Because I have lived with a silver spoon of the truth in my mouth all my life. And the only decisions for me that have been difficult to that is, am I going to live a moral or immoral life? But when you have been walking in a denominational era and you have been duped by the fallacy 
of what that is, and you come face to face with that and the reality, this is going to undo everything I have ever believed in my life, and now I'm going to be totally different. Will I have the same zeal and devotion for the Lord that Saul of Tarsus had? That's challenging. And far too often, sadly, people run up against it. And it's not that they cannot. They will not. And they go on living more frustrated lives because of their failure after failure after failure. When the cup of grace is handed out before them. And they can drink cup, deep of that cup of grace and be filled with all his fullness. Paul said, the way I was going was bankrupt. I wanted, like these Judaizers, to be persuaded that I was right above everybody else. And what Paul said, learned is, I'm not in competition with anybody. The only thing I need to be concerned about is my relationship here and the walk of my life all the days of my life. And so, he will say, I looked at all this peripheral stuff. It was nothing but to be thrown in the garbage heap for me. And I think what he's saying is like Solomon is, where will you go after you have sought the wind? Will you reach out and grab it and open your hand? And it's vanity and vanity, vexation of spirit. But in Christ, there is my fullness. And there is my salvation. That is powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. We'll pause there in our narrative. Thank you for listening so well this morning. Hope this means something to you. And I hope you can catch a few of the fumes of Paul's all-consuming passion. We'll have a word of prayer and a song, then go to our classes. Thank you. Thank you for connecting with us this morning. We're so thankful that you were able to do that. If you have questions, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk to you. You can contact us at www.thebibleway.com or questions at thebibleway.com. Questions at thebibleway.com. We'd love to have you in person. Come if you can. But thank you for connecting with us.